regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. Happy Halloween to you. My name is Cam Edwards, and I'm glad you're with us on the program. Thought about dressing up, but you know what? I'm almost... I'm, I'm, I'm disturbingly close to 50 years old. I think it's a little too old to be dressing up for Halloween on... Uh, on camera, but I hope that uh, you enjoy your trick or treating wherever it may take you. Because we haven't had trick or treaters since we uh, moved to the farm. Ten years since we've had a trick or treater. We we decorate the house for the, uh, you know, folks from the post office who come by. That's about it. All right, uh, we are going to be talking about a scary situation here on Cam and Coming today. Not spooky, but scary. Uh, an attempt by DC and the uh, Metro system. Uh, to prevent individuals from exercising their right to bear arms on public transportation. Now, I, I should note that Metro has banned firearms from uh, their trains and their buses, so they are trying to keep this ban in place. Uh, this ban is being challenged in federal court uh, by uh, four individuals who would like to lawfully carry on the uh, Metro, uh, and right now, D.C. is putting up a defense. So the latest filing in this case, uh, you've had the initial complaint, D.C.'s response, uh, and now the plaintiffs have had their chance to respond uh, to the district's argument, which is basically uh, they don't have standing to sue. Uh, but even if they did, this prohibition would be OK because uh, public transportation should be considered a sensitive place where firearms are off limits. Uh, in their request for a preliminary injunction, the uh, plaintiffs write that uh, they are likely to prevail on the merits because the district has failed to point to established representative, quote, distinctly similar restrictions from the founding era banning firearm carry on public transportation vehicles. Public transportation, they note, arose shortly after ratification of the Second Amendment, grew throughout the 19th century to include ferry services, river boats, omnibuses, commuter rail, interstate passenger rail, and streetcars. In the early 20th century, subway service developed, and the defendants have been able to point to new laws prohibiting gun carry on these conveyances during the relevant period, much less an established tradition of banning gun carry on public transportation, which they say dooms the provision in D.C. code barring firearms on the metro. Uh, as for their sensitive place argument, uh, the plaintiffs point out that the district and the metro system uh, is not uh, analogous to uh, schools or to the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. They say the mere fact that minors and government workers are present does not convert a public place into a sensitive place. Noting that if guns can be banned everywhere that children or government workers might be, then there would be no place in Washington, D.C., where plaintiffs could exercise their Second Amendment right to carry a firearm for personal protection, which, by the way, would be seen as a feature and not a bug for the District of Columbia because they don't want people carrying concealed. Not on metro subway cars, not on metro buses, not on city streets, frankly, not even in your own home. That's That issue, thankfully, has been uh, decided in favor of gun owners. Uh, but again, the district's hostility towards the right to keep and bear arms, unfortunately, is still very much around. Uh, the plaintiffs also note that even today, a carry on public transportation is banned in only a handful of states. And they say that the pedigree of those laws uh, dates back only to the late 20th century. They note that California, for example, 
not a, quote, particularly favorable state for Second Amendment freedoms, specifically allows carry on public transportation for those with a carry license. They note as well that New York did not ban public transportation carry until a, quote, fit of peak following his loss in Bruin and a New York district court has issued a temporary restraining order, uh, restraining enforcement of that provision. They note that uh, because the District of Columbia has failed to justify its carry ban as Bruin requires, plaintiffs are likely to succeed on its merits. I'm really glad to see that the uh, uh, attorneys in this case, um, uh, George Lyon and uh, Matthew Bersham from uh, Arsenal Attorneys, pointed out that New York actually allowed carry on public transportation until just a few months ago, when all of a sudden it became incredibly important that the state of New York be able to ban Concealed carry in public transportation when only a select few number of people or maybe when uh, primarily only those outside of New York City in certain jurisdictions were able to obtain a carry license. Well, that was fine. Right. But as soon as the May issue laws were ruled unconstitutional and the Supreme Court said, listen, we're talking about a fundamental right here. People have the right not only to keep arms in their home for self-defense, but they have the right to bear arms in public for self-defense as well. Only then, faced with an onslaught of applications from New Yorkers who were eager to start exercising their Second Amendment rights, only then did the state of New York decide, <laughs> we've got to make that a sensitive place. And I don't think that that was an accident. I think, again, that this was intentional. As long as New York believed that it was able to limit the uh, type of person, right, who could obtain a concealed carry license by requiring that they show some sort of good cause or justifiable need, well, those folks could carry in all kinds of places, right? But once it was about a right and exercising a right, then all of a sudden it became about curtailing and diminishing that right as much as possible. Not only public transportation, but again, houses of worship, all private property by default. Uh, and uh, a lot of places uh, that are private property, even those property owners not able to allow concealed carry on the premises. When it comes to public property, though, I think the, uh, the bans are even more suspect. Because again, we're talking about a fundamental right here. Now, the Supreme Court did say in Bruin that there are certain longstanding prohibitions on uh, carrying in sensitive places uh, like uh, polling places, legislative assemblies, and courthouses. But they noted that those were the exceptions, right? That the rule is that the right to carry is respected. Not in Washington, D.C. And certainly not when it comes to carrying in public transportation. As the uh, plaintiffs point out, both the government and their amici demonstrate a, quote, fundamental misunderstanding of Bruin. Their filings essentially suggest that the court, uh, in conducting the sensitive places analysis here, engage in the same men's, uh, means ends interest balancing that Bruin rejected. Their essential argument spread throughout their filings is that guns are dangerous and that guns are especially dangerous on the Metro. The plaintiff says, uh, uh, plaintiff's right, although the first point is indisputable, the second is debatable, but largely irrelevant. Under the analysis that Bruin requires, accordingly, it is appropriate to review the Bruin framework, which says that this interest balancing test, which the lower courts have broadly adopted, going back to the wake of the Heller decision in 2008, uh, in the words of uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, is one step too many. 
You don't need this two-step process where first you figure out, okay, is the Second Amendment implicated here? And if so, what level of scrutiny should we use to determine whether or not this law uh, is constitutional or not? A lot of courts uh, decided on intermediate scrutiny, which is a sort of vague, fuzzy middle ground that basically says if the government has a, a, a compelling interest, in this case public safety, uh, that virtually any gun control law can pass constitutional muster as long as the government says, well, we're doing this in the name of public safety. Uh, even strict scrutiny, in which the government must show that they are taking the most narrow approach possible, uh, the Supreme Court said, nope, even that is one step too many. Instead, once you've determined that the Second Amendment is implicated by a particular gun control law, then you have to look to the text of the Second Amendment. You have to look at the history and the tradition of the right to keep and bear arms in this country. Specifically, you have to look for analogous laws in history that are longstanding, widespread. You can't look for some sort of outlier ordinance somewhere that was on the books for six or eight months. But you've got to look to laws that were in place at the time of the founding and uh, secondarily at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified. And if you can't find those ana uh, analogs, and the Supreme Court said it doesn't have to be an exact match, but if you can't find something substantially similar to uh, longstanding laws that were on the books back then, mm, you're really going to have a difficult time justifying the constitutionality of a particular gun control law. And as the plaintiffs point out, you know, you started to see ferry service, for example, uh, steam-powered ferries. Actually, uh, you know, sail-powered ferries and human-powered ferries existed uh, even before the uh, uh, United States was the United States. But shortly after the founding of the United States, Robert Fulton invented the uh, steam engine or the uh, steamship, and then you started to have, you know, ferry service. Uh, the plaintiffs point out that uh, the, the rise of uh, uh, train service in the 19th century, uh, even stagecoaches. And in none of those circumstances uh, have either the plaintiffs or the defendants been able to find policies or laws that said, hey, if you're, uh, if you're traveling on a train, you can't bring a gun with you. Hey, if you're uh, taking a ferry, you, you can't carry a firearm. Uh, again, in fact, they found quite the opposite. The uh, uh, reply brief uh, from the plaintiffs uh, points out several instances of a New York paper's talking in the late 1800s uh, about armed citizens on subway cars. Because, again, that was perfectly fine and legal until just a few months ago in New York State. So Washington, D.C. has a, uh, a problem here. As the plaintiffs point out, given the ubiquity of public transportation systems post-enactment, the absence of gun carrier restrictions is remarkable. Neither D.C. nor its amici cite a single instance, much less an established history and tradition of legislation banning gun carry and public transportation in the relevant time period, uh, be that from the founding to the 14th Amendment or the period following the 14th Amendment's ratification beginning in the 20th century, a time that Bruin regards as much less significant, uh, notwithstanding every town's plea to the contrary. Uh, that is sufficient, they write, to doom the district's public carry ban or public transportation carry ban. So we have a few more weeks before the uh, uh, courts are going to take up this issue in earnest. But again, this is a request for a, uh, an injunction here, uh, blocking enforcement of this law while the case is being litigated. The plaintiffs are arguing that because they are likely to prevail on the merits of the case, uh, the law should be enjoined from being enforced any further until after this uh, court case is wrapped up. 
Uh, I, I got to say, I don't know what a judge is going to do here, but the arguments that the plaintiffs have made, I think, are incredibly strong. They're completely accurate. And the district's desire, along with anti-gun officials in New York uh, and uh, other anti-gun states, to prevent people who are reliant on public transportation from being able to protect themselves, not only on that subway car or on that uh, public bus, but after they get off or before they get on. I I have a very difficult time uh, seeing how these laws are going to stand, again, given what the Supreme Court has said in Bruin. And it really seems like, and this is something else the uh, plaintiffs uh, accuse the defendants of doing here in this case, of basically just trying to drag this out as long as possible uh, before they are delivered the inevitable court loss for their gun control laws. And in the meantime, of course, law-abiding citizens, responsible gun owners, will continue to be denied their right to carry, something that, again, I hope the courts do not allow to happen. We'll keep our eyes on this particular case, as well as all of the others that are making their way through the court system. It is such a busy time for the Second Amendment right now, and uh, we are doing our best to uh, keep up with all of these. In fact, there was a uh, there was a hearing last week for a request of an, a preliminary injunction against the Concealed Carry Improvement Act in New York. Uh, we are awaiting Judge Glenn Sutterby's decision in that preliminary hearing or a request for a preliminary injunction. Um, could it come down last week? I mean, it really could come down any time. There's no hard or fast deadline for Judge Sutterby to rule, but uh, I do anticipate that we'll get a ruling hopefully this week. Um, I've seen some folks speculating that maybe Judge Sutterby is going to wait until after the midterm elections are over, but uh, there's no reason for that to be the case. Again, the judge could hold on to his uh, opinion until then, but uh, I am hopeful that uh, this week we'll get some word from a federal judge in uh, New York about whether or not the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, at least many of its provisions, can continue to be enforced while the uh, law is being challenged. Now let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We will start there uh, with a case out of Michigan, Wyandotte, Michigan, where a uh, parolee with an extensive criminal history still released on Basically, it's personal recognizance. No no bond necessary. Uh, despite a laundry list of criminal offenses in his past, 26-year-old Tobias Catrone uh, is a, quote, absolute risk to society, according to Wyandotte Deputy Police Chief Archie Hamilton, who says that uh, Catrone's criminal history tells us that, but he'll tell you that as well, he said. Hamilton said he bragged to our officers, he stabbed people, he shot people, and he's boasted about never getting convicted because he'll intimidate witnesses. It was uh, last Friday. About uh, 3.30 in the morning, police officer in Wyandotte, Michigan, spotted a uh, vehicle in a neighborhood. As the officer approached the vehicle, driver took off at a high rate of speed. There was a uh, pursuit, ended up in a crash in downtown Detroit. Uh, Archie Hamilton says what the officer did not know at the time is that Mr. Catrone was just released from prison on parole. He was driving a stolen vehicle and has this long, long history of violence. That lengthy history includes arrests for alleged crimes, including attempted murder, armed robbery, uh, restricting or resisting and obstructing police, as well as fleeing and eluding. A lot of these cases, like we talk about every day here on this program, have ended up in plea deals, probation, outright dismissals in some case. Uh, he did eventually 
go to prison for being a convicted felon in possession of a firearm. He was paroled on September 27th of this year, a little more than a month ago. And on Sunday, he was charged with fleeing a police officer, a felony, and he was granted a personal bond by a, a local judge who was handling Wayne County's weekend docket. Archie Hamilton says he's on parole. He was just released from prison. And despite all of those circumstances, he was allowed to walk free on a personal bond by the magistrate. He says he brags about running from the police because he knows and all his criminal friends know that if they run from the police, there will be no consequences, even if they're captured. He says the answer is to motivate criminals not to run. And the only way we can do that is by enhancing the penalty for fleeing and eluding. He said people are, are running in vehicles from the police at an alarming rate. He said we had another pursuit over the weekend. It's almost a daily event for uh, Wyandotte police, he said. Lawmakers need to step up. They're ignoring a huge problem. Well, yes, they, they probably are. Uh, but unfortunately, with Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer not inclined to uh, get tough on violent criminals and more inclined to go after responsible gun owners, it's probably going to take a, a change in leadership in Michigan before lawmakers are really able to fundamentally address this issue. Now, today's armed citizen story from uh, Ferguson, Missouri, where the body of a, a teenager found in a backyard, police say, may be related to an attempted carjacking that took place over the weekend, a carjacking that apparently was stopped by an armed citizen. Uh, that carjacking happened Thursday morning. Uh, and about uh, 8.20 on Thursday, a man who uh, lives there in Ferguson looked out his window and saw a body in the backyard. Uh, called police. They came out and uh, they determined that the uh, individual in question, a, a teenager, somewhere between 15 and 18 years of age, wearing a black hoodie, black sweatpants, black tennis shoes, had a black satchel. Uh, there were also several other items found near the body. Police say the items did not belong to the residents and weren't seen in the backyard the night before. Several hours earlier, about uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, police had been conducting a, a check for three individuals who were scoping out cars in the area. Uh, two of the men were wearing all black clothing, one had on a gray hoodie. Police say that they then heard several gunshots, and they saw a vehicle which had several holes in the windshield and front passenger window slowly driving down the street. Officers obviously pulled the car over, talked to the driver, who told him that he had been sitting in his vehicle when he spotted the three men. One of them, the uh, driver said, was holding what uh, he thought was a gun and reached for the driver's door handle. That's when the driver reached for his own gun and fired several shots. The driver drove away, saw the police vehicle, and uh, pulled over to report what had happened. Uh, police searched the area for possible victims but couldn't find any. Uh, police now, though, say that these two incidents appear to be related. They have not officially ruled this a case of self-defense, so we will keep our eyes on the story, bringing any more details as they become available. But uh, at, at, at first report, that is certainly what uh, this suggests. So, again, we'll keep our eyes on the story and bring in more details as they become available. Finally today, our good deed of the day in the right place at the right time, even hundreds of feet in the air, a man flying a, a paramotor uh, and uh, other good Samaritans rescuing a woman after her car plunged into a canal in uh, southwest Miami-Dade County over the weekend. Yeah, this was pretty frightening. Now, Cristiano Piquet says he was, you know, just spending his Sunday morning gliding in his paramotor. He had a friend there and he saw a splash. He said, I turned around to get a better shot with my GoPro and I see a car in the canal. He said, so I flew closer to the car and I saw someone inside the car like yelling for help. 
So Cristiano Piquet was able to land not far away from that canal, and then he ran over to help. Uh, both he and his friend making contact with the driver of the car who said, oh, my God, I fell in with my car in here. Uh, there was another individual on the other side of the canal, apparently a, a neighbor who also had heard what happened. Uh, the three men uh, were all able to uh, to help assist that woman to safety. The neighbor getting a rope and actually pulling the woman from the canal. Uh, Piquette said, everything happened so fast. After we got her to safety, we called 911. Uh, they came. He said they gave her the help that she needed. He says he's just grateful he was able to lend a helping hand. He said, I wish I would know more about why she was there. Thankfully, the uh, injury she received, non-life-threatening. Police still investigating the cause of the crash. But uh, thanks again to the fast response of Cristiano Paquette flying in the skies overhead, as well as the uh, neighbor on the ground. Uh, thankfully, this woman looks like is going to be okay. Now, that is all we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam & Company. I do want to thank you for being a part of the program, as always. We'll be back tomorrow with even more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. Just a week away from Election Day. I have a feeling I know what our topic of conversation is going to be on Tuesday's Cam and Company. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to check out BarryandArms.com throughout the day. We are constantly updating the website with the latest two-way news that you need to know about. And if you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber as well. Just go to BarryandArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. And as our way of saying thank you for showing your support, we're going to give you exclusive news stories and analysis you won't find anywhere else. Because your support does matter. And it really does make a difference. So thank you again. Like I said, have a great Halloween. Happy hauntings. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well. Be safe. And be free.